ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. Very warm welcome to the Country Hour on a very difficult day. Thank you for joining us on the program. We are at Crown for the Australian Dairy Conference and we will get to that. An international flavour here at Crown today. Uh, You'll hear from an Irish farm consultant, hear from a UK specialist on connecting with the public. You'll hear from a dairy farmer from New Zealand about how their industries are going and what we can learn about it here. Also a Canadian farmer on the program today. But for our state... For our farming communities, it's been a difficult 24 hours, hasn't it? A a very difficult 24 hours, whether you're in the west of the state battling fires, whether you've been uh, under some pretty difficult storms and nowhere else worse was hit than the area around Merbeen North in Gippsland, South Gippsland, where it has been confirmed that a farmer has died. And uh, we know him too on the country out too, so it's a very sombre start to the show today uh, and a very sad start to the the show today. have speaking with a family so I won't give you a name yet uh, obviously want to hear from them before I uh, do anything further there but it is a sad start of the program and that's where we'll begin the country hour today where a farmer has died in last night's severe storms damaging winds heavy rain affected large parts of the state downing trees and power lines leaving more than half a million properties at one stage without electricity around 220,000 homes are still cut off and the SES has received more than four and a half thousand calls for help for fallen trees and property damage. Uh, Premier Jacinta Allen confirmed a 50-year-old dairy farmer from Merbu North was killed in storms that went through South Gippsland. Here's what she had to say a little earlier. Very sadly, we've had one fatality confirmed, a dairy farmer in Merbu North who was killed in the storms that went through South Gippsland last night. And our thoughts and also to our support are with, uh, with the family who have lost uh, a loved one and also the broader community. I'd also too like to acknowledge the, again, remarkable response we have witnessed and are continuing to witness from our uh, firefighters, our emergency responders, SES members and everyone who has been working very hard around the clock to manage the emergency. And I'd also particularly like to acknowledge the five firefighters from the Ballarat CFA Brigade who were injured in Pomonal yesterday. They are out there responding to the call out, protecting the Pomonal community. And uh, please know you have the gratitude of all of us for the selfless work that you do. There are some, particularly in the west of the state, who experienced those uh, that terrible fire experience that went through the state, who have spent the night at a uh, relief centre in Stool, who don't know if they've got a home to go to today. And our thoughts are with them. Uh, there are rapid assessments being undertaken as we speak, and further information can be provided as those assessments are undertaken, particularly around the community of Pomonal. That's the Premier Jacinta Allen speaking there. Uh, we will go to Pomonal in just a moment. The 50-year-old dairy farmer that has died in Merbu North, it's our understanding that he was found behind uh, the shed uh, and either being hit by debris in the storm or trampled by cattle. Ambulance officers worked on him at the scene and he later died. It is 8 past 12. I mentioned we'd go to 
the fires now uh, with a difficult 24 hours for our state. Uh, we'll go to the bushfires that hit communities around the Grampians now. One of those fires has destroyed many homes and infrastructure, as you just heard the Premier talking about, and uh, the community of Pomonal is still on edge as it starts to look at the clean-up. Kate, Kirkpat- Kate Kirkpatrick is a Pomonal livestock producer who also runs a wedding venue at her farm, and Angus Verley spoke with her just a few moments ago. It's been a pretty horrific yesterday morning, was was looking okay and then obviously um, some dry lightning strikes and uh, we evacuated our property around two o'clock uh, once the smoke got a lot heavier um, and not realising I suppose the depth of the situation then and yeah, as we evacuated about 40 k's away we could just um, see it all unfolding and just yeah, really unfortunate to what's happened to our community overnight but um, we'll all band together and um, yeah, we'll come out stronger. Have you been able to get back to your farm and do you know what sort of damage there might have been? Uh, we understand we've had some um, our neighbouring um, farms that have stayed overnight and we understand we have got some damage to um, the west or the southwest and where the fire was in that direction, um, our boundary. So we'll hopefully be able to head up through soon and go and check livestock and, and fences and all the rest of it. But we're just, we, are, um, we understand our house um, has been saved in the sheds, but we know and are hurting for everyone that, um, that doesn't have a home today. And Kate, I know information is scant, but have you got a sense of how many farms, how many houses, how many people have been affected around the Pomonal community by these fires? Uh, look, the, yes, the internet has been a bit patchy trying to get through to everyone today, but we're sort of just going with the media reports at the moment. We obviously about 30 or so, and I'm sure there'll be more to come as they start, start checking other farms. Um, we're very fortunate to have great neighbours as well in our small community and they were out protecting our properties. We understand last night we uh, actually run a wedding business from our farm and had two weddings scheduled today for Valentine's Day. So um, we've managed to, um, we had to change a lot last night and, and we had a couple still wanting to get married. So we've just managed to be able to deliver their wedding for them in Ararat today with the help of some amazing vendors. So that's some, some good coming out of it for Valentine's Day. <laughs> running weddings, I'm sure, are big, big enough jobs at the best of times, let alone in the, in the midst of a natural disaster. That's right. Well, we um, have some very accommodating couples. They've been so understanding and they're country people themselves that were eloping today at the farm in our tiny chapel um, and that obviously wasn't to be and uh, we all managed to uh, pull it together in Ararat um, today. So we've just uh, just finished that one, which is amazing. Kate, I heard from uh, Philip Vaughan, a pomonal flower grower earlier on. He talked about the work the CFA had done and he essentially said that if not for the CFA, there would be barely a, a house left in Pomonal. That's right. We um, And obviously the CFA are the volunteers and they are the backbone of not only our community but have travelled um, from all around the districts um, and, and we saw lots of vehicles headed our way to support our community when we were evacuating. So, yeah, without all of those and the air services and, and dwelps and parks, we, um, we wouldn't have our little town, I, I understand, yeah. It's going to be a long road ahead, I'm sure. It certainly will be. Uh, we know we have an amazing, resilient community and they, and we know, you know, country people are strong and, and great um, towns will all band together through this. But, you know, our heart um, aches for everyone that's unfortunately lost more than what we did uh, yesterday. That is Kate Kirkpatrick from Pomonal speaking about the damage the fires have caused to her community. And look, 
Dadswell's Bridge is not far from there, had its own fire to deal with. It's really only up the road and farmers there are counting the losses of the fire that swept through their community overnight. Daryl Deutscher owns Deutscher's Turkey Farm in the centre of Dadswell's Bridge and he spoke with Angus Furley about what he and others went through yesterday and the fire that uh, came through. Look, I didn't know anything was happening basically until I had a phone call from a business in Horsham that cancelled an appointment, said they heard there's a bit of a the fire had started up in the Grampians and um, nobody seemed to know a lot about it. And then one of the people that works for me, her husband, rang up um, up near old Dadsville town to say that they'd get home. It didn't look good. And, um, yeah, there's heaps of smoke coming through and there's um, heaps of trucks, CFA and, and, and emergency services and such. And then Caravan Park, apparently they're protecting that. Then McDonald's next door to me, they... Um, must have crossed just the other side of the bridge and there's a heap of smoke and oh, you couldn't see there's um, so much smoke there, whether the house was safe or not there. And then oh, um, I was sort of doing all my chores, sort of think, well, whatever happens, if there's still a place here tonight, I need to do some chores. But anyway, they kidded me into leaving at around about half past five, which I regret doing there because... Um, I needed to be here, um, a disaster or, or whatever there. So um, I came back about 40 minutes later and, yeah, the fire had burnt, um, had burnt around the back of me to the north prior to that and I'm not sure whether it had gone across Stapleton's Road and affecting other people. But, yeah, it burnt about half the north half of my property, about half the property, and um, thankfully a house, factory, um, buildings and turkeys all safe. Very grateful for that. Just thinking, people said, um, has this happened before? I said about three times in the 42 years I've been here, we've been under threat of being burnt out. So this is, um, yeah, this is the first time it's actually hit us. Hit us, I guess, yes. And Daryl, I'm sure you would have been extremely concerned about your turkeys. Very, well, just everything. We're extremely concerned about everything, Angus, yes. And Daryl, a colleague and I were were uh, looking at that Stapleton, well, where it started at Mount Stapleton only yesterday afternoon, so it must have come down out of the Grampians very quickly. Very quickly, it seems to do that. Um, yeah, so it didn't take long, but that wind was pretty ferocious too, gusting all over the place. Um, Angus, it certainly was an extreme day. And that wind basically drove the fire directly toward Dadswell's? <laughs> it's funny you say that. When we had the Roses Gap fire back in about 09, that was burning away from us. And when the wind changed, I think listening to ABC, it came straight back at Tadgell's Bridge, believe it or not. There. So I seem to be a bit of a magnet sometimes. Yeah, it certainly did, yeah. And Daryl, you said you, you briefly left the property, but you, you came back soon after and, and you decided at that stage that you weren't leaving again, you were, you were staying regardless? Well, just, just to say what had happened, basically, um... I mean, there's a bit of um, bare spots and green spots and things like that on the farm, and um, you can't do anything if you're up the road or in town or anything like that. You have stock to look after, Angus. You've got to be responsible for that, and a lot of these people don't understand that, I believe. Um, well, it, yeah, leaves a safe option there. Um, no, sorry, you've got stock to look after, you're responsible for. I mean, especially with birds, you can't leave them in there, but hey, your stock still need looking after, simple as that. No, and um, learning from that, I would never leave again. Uh, now, Daryl, I suppose you, you've still got your turkeys to look after and, and life goes on. Life goes on. We have customers in Melbourne waiting for product to be delivered tomorrow and um, come hell or high water, I guess. 
um, you do your best. Um, and so I'm very grateful to have a house and a factory and buildings and turkeys left there that we, we can still carry on, Angus. That's Daryl Deutsche from Deutsche's Turkey Farm at Dadswell's Bridge, one of the locations of major fires in Victoria yesterday. You heard from Pomonal earlier than that as well. We are on location today for the country, but if you have questions that you need answered from authorities, we can start that work on your behalf. Prue can pick it up and drive as well, so you can always send us a text. Hopefully you've got enough phone service to do that, as we've seen with some of the uh, difficulties in different areas of the state today, though. But you can text us 0467 842 722, 0467 and uh, we can start trying to find out what answers we can get on your behalf here on the country. You can also just tell us how you're going too, because it has been a difficult 24-hour, whether it has been the storms, whether it has been the fires, whether it's been something else. Let's bring our focus back to the Dairy Conference in Melbourne right now in Crown, where we're broadcasting from today. Uh, But we're lifting our eyes and going international too, where farmers have been facing a number of problems and the question of what to do about it is always front of mind. We have three guests with us now. We'll uh, introduce you you to them as we, we go along. But it is interesting sometimes to lift our eyes and talk about what's happening in other parts of the world. We start to see, thanks to social media and news reports, some of the events happening around the world, but to actually hear from people on the ground about what those experiences are like is an important thing to do. Mike Brady is a dairy farm consultant from Ireland. He's been speaking at this forum under the title, What Happens When Government Takes Charge of Dairy's Future, which is a very interesting uh, title indeed. And when, as we've been reporting on with uh, mass protests in Europe and alike uh, over the last uh, few months, it uh, certainly takes a different framing as well. Mike Brady, welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Warwick. Good to be here. Take me to Ireland. What's the situation for dairy farmers at the moment in Ireland with government regulation and that conversation? Okay, well, I suppose, Warwick, we've just come out of a fantastic 10-year growth in in the dairy industry. You know, EU milk quotas were removed in 2015. We'd been planning for that since maybe 2007 or 2008. So we increased milk production by 50%. Um... The target was to do it by 2020 from 2011, but it was done by 2018. So it was a very exciting time to be on farm. You know, people had very elaborate um, capital investment plans put together in 2011, 12, 13, and they've executed them. And they're now bearing the fruits. But we've had a recent um, reform of the common agricultural policy, as we do every five years, and that's causing some challenges. And... uh those challenges actually first before I start waxing lyrical what are those challenges for the industry they're actually different for every country and I know the media are playing on a lot of these protests across Europe at the moment but it's actually no one issue Um, you go to Germany I think they're complaining about um, diesel tax a tax on diesel their issues with uh, plant protection products Um, in France it's their cheap imports and bureaucracy is is the big issue Um, like even in Poland and Romania they're complaining about cheap grain coming in from the Ukraine believe Mm. it or not but in Ireland our one is water quality we've um, and that effectively means you have to reduce your cow herd right no, that's the way it's been portrayed. Okay. Okay, it's a stocking rate per hectare. Yep. Okay, so it, you can still have as many hectares as you want, but you're limited on the amount of cows you can have on every hectare. 
And, and that's Jew- a government mandate in terms of cows per hectare. It's an EU directive yep. put into national legislation in Ireland. And it, we, we get a permission, it's a EU directive that you have to be at under 170 kilos of nitrogen. We had a, a permission or a directive that we could go up to 250 because we have a, cl- a temperate climate and we can grow more grass than the rest of Europe. But they've reduced that to 220 recently, and they've come at it from the other end as well. They've increased the amount of nitrogen that a cow excretes. So effectively, on the ground, dairy farmers that I deal with every day have two choices. Reduce their livestock, hence the factor that you're saying they have to reduce their herds. But the other option is rent more land, which should come from the other industries, like beef or, or arable, which is causing a bit of friction between the different enterprises and the different farmers. So what is this doing to either the representation of farmers, like how farmers are talking to each other, or, uh, or the debate with government in Ireland at the moment? Yeah, the debate with government has been fractious. Um, our minister is under pressure. Um, there are European elections in June, and we have a general election coming up next year. So naturally, politically, the, the farm organisations will ratchet up the, the protesting when you're getting near an election. You, know, you have a better chance of getting a better result. Um, so that's, that, that is happening at the moment. But um, I suppose our dairy farmers have been doing particularly well um, over the last number of years. They've had record milk prices. Take, since 2016, where there was a bad milk price, we've had very good years basically since. Um, and a lot of them are pretty comfortable. They're, they're, like it was interesting. Our French neighbours are knocking down doors and breaking into McDonald's. But the title on our um, protest were "We're protesting in solidarity with our European neighbours." <laughs> <laughs> so you're not even protesting on behalf of yourselves. Yeah, that, I thought that was a bit unusual from our farm organisation. But look, uh, enough is enough. Is I think was their um, was their slogan. I want to speak to you about what Australian the Australian industry can learn from the Irish experience okay. in a moment. But we'll come to that. Let's continue the conversation first and bring in Dr. Amy Jackson, who's far, a farmer, PR specialist, agricultural research uh, from the United Kingdom, not too far from the from the Irish industry. But you know, there's no love lost. I'd imagine all the same as well. Uh, you've been speaking here about connecting with the public, and you've got some interesting thoughts on how farmers could do this because I think no matter the country a change happens and people who aren't happy with that change immediately get angry and try and try and yell loudest and get a change in government but that's not exactly your idea of how to get change is it? Well um, I think that we have to think about long-term relationships it's all about long-term relationships like the public actually really respect and want farmers and they um, really like what farmers do for the most time they want to trust farmers and farmers have to basically allow that trust to happen so trust is about repeated positive behavior and building those relationships actually pay dividends in the long term and it's around key issues like animal welfare um, environmental issues carbon emissions but especially local air and water quality and biodiversity which are the big issues in the UK at the moment so are the farmers delivering on those things and farmers lately in the UK is this fair to say have been very vocal about a system of low prices and uh, 
and with difficulties about subsidies and so forth, making their future at risk. Is, is that part of the conversation? How does it, that work into this? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation because since, uh, since we left the EU, sorry, Mike, um, we, we've been adapting to a new subsidy regime. And uh, so the system in Europe has been tailing down and the new uh, subsidy regimes have been replacing them, but in the four devolved nations, so England, Scotland, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and Wales. And that's been added another layer of complexity because, for example, um, in England, the sustainable farming incentive is rewarding farmers for public goods. So that's things like biodiversity and uh, doing positive things for local air and water quality. But in Scotland, they've continued with some of the kind of um, just payment schemes, direct payments. And that then creates inequality, especially for for beef and sheep farmers, uh, where they're trading in the same markets because one is effectively directly subsidised and the other isn't. In Wales, they're having huge problems because the Welsh government has introduced um, a new regime which is basically uh, promoting biodiversity and carbon reduction over Welsh food and that's been really tough and there's been quite a few farm uh, meetings in Wales recently with thousands of farmers and that is getting really quite um, difficult situation over there. We're still waiting to hear what's happening in Northern Ireland. So how does that disruption and the difficulties currently facing farmers in these corners of the UK feed into what you're saying um, would be a better way of doing business, trying to develop long-term relationships and get changed that way? It is, it is a difficult one because there's another sort of added problem around retailer power and the fact that there's a feeling that retail, retailers aren't uh, paying the appropriate amount to farmers. And I know you've had that problem, uh, that, that concern in, in Australia as well. Um, and what we've seen is in some particular sectors like the uh, laying hens, egg sector and uh, orchards, fruit, um, people are actually coming out of those industries because they 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 can't you know make them pay financially. With dairy, it's a bit different because half of our market is actually liquid milk sales, so that puts a floor in everything. Um, but I think really what worries me a little bit is around um, that there's been a kind of move to try and do some of the similar things in the UK that that's happening in Europe. So no farmers, no food. Um, whether that works long term, we're a slightly different culture. We're not like the French. We don't get out there and protest, and you know, no one's like the French. Yeah, though, right? set fire to things. But uh, but um, going down that route can be a bit short term, and it can turn very difficult um, at, at short notice because if for example you're disrupting people's lives, you're stopping them getting to places they want to go, um, then the public can actually turn against that situation. I think it's about long term relationships about um, demonstrating you're doing the things properly, you're doing the animal welfare, you're doing the environment um, and you're ahead of it as well uh, you're not being forced to do it, you're actually seeing their issues, you're sharing their values and you're getting in there and tackling those issues up front. Is Jeremy Clarkson good for British farming or does he add a difficult add more difficulties so I'm going to choose my words carefully here I'm not going to talk about um, <laughs> some of the things he said which haven't maybe been very politically correct but um, interestingly he reaches a group of people that don't know much about farming and so he's been very good for kind of revealing what it's like to farm to a certain segment of our society 
And for those who don't know, if you're under a rock, Jeremy Clarkson is the uh, TV host. He's a columnist in the UK as well. Very sort of big character. Has now a farming show about him trying to learn how to farm. And he has strong things to say, like he doesn't know why New Zealand lamb is cheaper in the UK than UK lamb, and et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on from there. Yeah, absolutely. And he he's really has opened up. Um, especially people who watch kind of his show was always about cars and motoring it was kind of a guy's thing but uh, he certainly raised awareness in amongst that particular demographic where he probably hasn't uh, been so successful is in amongst probably a more critical demographic which are the people who criticise us on environment so you might call them slightly more left wing environmentally conscious people are not his audience and they're the ones who are creating more fuss about what farmers are doing to local rivers um, ammonia emissions and and biodiversity so he's he's good for part of it but he's not solving our problem you need a jeremy clarkson at the left wing we do. <laughs> um, amy jackson stay with us for a moment but i'll get you to pass over to chris falconer who is a dairy farmer nuffield scholar new zealand closer to uh, australia than these two but still very different country and in some ways a very different farming system as well you've been speaking about connecting with consumers do you hear a lot in what amy says that you relate to well, I think that the, the um, theory works in practice. So, so that's what I've discovered, is that, is that the more we connect directly as farmers with consumers and the more we listen to their concerns um, in, in a way that we don't get all defensive about and that we can be constructive with, the better off we are. Um, I've, I've been seeing yesterday, we, we saw a graph around how um, the public viewed farmers in Australia. I'd be interested to know what the um, public thought of farming leadership, because I think they can be viewed as, as, as a barrier to change as opposed to an agent for change. And I don't think as farmers we can necessarily rely on that style. Can I examine that a little bit more? What, what do you mean by that? Why is sometimes uh, farming leaders a barrier to change? I think it's because they've got a really broad church of, of people that they represent um, and, they, and they, they're sensitive to offending demographics within that broad church and I think that makes them conservative um, and it seems to me at least like their first reaction to anything is to pump the brakes, right? It's the first thing they, that they do. Instead of saying, okay, we're listening, uh, they pump the brakes and there's a bunch of what about stuff comes out. So I, I, and I don't think that's constructive. Just, I'm conscious of time, so, and I really want to ask you guys uh, what Australia can learn from your experiences. But just before we get there, there'll be even speeches today saying, you keep focusing on, on all these fluffy issues about what consumers want. We need to get back to just making profit as a dairy farmer and not engage in anything else. Um, clearly, that's different to what all three of you have been talking about here. Why should people um, consider more what you're saying here than that approach of just put your head down and make a profit? Well, pretty much the way we're approaching our communications and our responses underwrites our profit. It's not in conflict with profit. It, it, it um, future-proofs us against uh, issues that are coming over the hill. Because we're listening and because the way things change, it tends to be society's opinion, then a political opinion, that gets passed to regulators and policy wonks, and then there's a whole bunch of consultation, and it can be years down the track before anything changes. And when you finally get there, the public says, well, what have you been doing all this time? We thought you were addressing that. 
and so you don't get any credit for the change when it becomes mandated. But it's a, yeah, exactly. What can Australian farmers learn from New Zealand right now? Um, well, I, I would say that um, it, was, it was interesting um, hearing that they're going to start instituting some of these measures that people are looking for in terms of nitrates, in terms of um, carbon footprinting. I mean, I've got four years' worth of carbon footprinting done independently and verified. So, you know, we're starting to build that information base, not just for ourselves, but, but for NZ Farming Inc. Uh, Mike Brody, let's take me to Ireland. What can Australian farmers learn from the Irish experience right now? My experience has been expansion for the past 10, 15 years. I've just come out of a session in the conference where they're talking about what would happen if it comes from 8 billion litres down to 6 billion litres here. Mm-hmm. That's got to be stopped somewhere or another. And I think there's lots of land in this country. Water is a big issue. Succession is an issue. But labour is a big issue. And I think there are kids out there, certainly in Ireland, where they wouldn't have the same opportunity to farm at scale. Right? And I think they should attract some people like that from other countries who are interested in coming into those older farmers who have no successors here who are working in Melbourne or or, or Sydney or whatever and bring them in as share milkers, bring them in as partners and and build them up. I think that's the way to to drive the industry from grassroots level. If you're solving labour problems, there'll be dairy farmers out there licking their lips. Uh, Amy Jackson, Dr Amy Jackson, what can we learn from the UK? I'm quite interested that I don't think you've had the challenges that we've had around. You've had a little bit on animal welfare, but nowhere near what we've had. And uh, environment, I can't believe I'm not hearing stuff about carbon emissions. That is coming down the road. And I honestly think engage with it, get ahead of it. Because if you can get ahead of it and actually start dealing with it proactively, you hit the ground running and you generate that trust because you're not being dragged down the road. You're actually recognizing and sharing values with your public and you're doing something about it so i would say horizon scan look at what's happening and get ahead of it because it is coming you can't avoid it look i asked for it but it's free advice from overseas for you today on the country hour thank you all three of you for for joining us on the program you are listening to the country hour there is uh, some emergency warnings we have to get to and we'll do that right now abc radio emergency information All right, we have two Watch and Act warnings still current for Victoria. The first one of those is in Belfield, Halls Gap, Lake Fyans and Pomonal. Uh, This is still a bushfire that is not yet under control. Firefighters have been able to slow the spread of the fire for now, but the situation can change at any time, so you must monitor conditions and be ready to act. Don't wait. Leaving now is the safest option. Conditions may change and get worse very quickly. And the second Watch and Act warning is for Dadswell's Bridge, uh, Lead Court and Roses Gap. The bushfire is not yet under control there either. The bushfire is now impacting private property north of Dadswell's Bridge and is travelling in a north-easterly direction. The fire has now crossed the Wimmera River west of Glenorchy near Naylor Swamp Road on the northern side of the river. The advice is don't wait. Leaving now is the safest option. Conditions may change and get worse very quickly and emergency services may not be able to help you if you decide to stay. For those that have already left the area, there is that relief centre at the Grampian Community Health, 8 to 22 Patrick Street in Stall. With those power outages across the state, there are still 220,000 Victorian homes without power. So just repeating, 
two Wachanaks, one for Belfield, a Belfield settlement, Halls Gap, Lake Fines and Pomonal, and another for Dadswells Bridge, Leadcourt and Roses Gap, just down the road for each other. But two important informations you need to be aware of. So stay up to date via the Vic Emergency website, your local ABC Radio Facebook page, and of course on ABC Radio as the conditions change. We will bring it to you. If not, your next update will be at 1.30. This is the Country Hour. Work along with you. I am late for rural news. Emma Field has it for you again today. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. And just to recap the news we heard at the top of the show, a 50-year-old Merbu North dairy farmer died in the storms which swept across the state yesterday afternoon. Premier Jacinta Allen confirmed the death at a press conference a short, uh, short time ago, offering condolence to the family of the deceased man and his community. She also paid tribute to the many emergency service workers who responded to more than 4,500 calls for help, including firefighters injured at the Pomonal fire in Western Victoria yesterday. And I'd also particularly like to acknowledge the five firefighters from the Ballarat CFA Brigade who were injured in Pomonal yesterday. They were out there responding to the call out, protecting the Pomonal community. And uh, please know, you have the gratitude of all of us for the selfless work that you do. And still on the storms, Telstra says 223 mobile sites are still off air and some landlines are being affected across Victoria. But a spokesman for the company says it's sending generators to restore the telecommunications and said that there was about 265 base stations which have come back online overnight. Telstra says network sites and telephone exchanges all need power to run. Specialist staff will be dispatched around Australia to slow the spread of the destructive rower mite across the bee industry. The federal government's National Management Group has unanimously endorsed a transition to management plan with response response costs capped at $100 million. The revised plan comes after nearly five months comes nearly five months after Australia gave up on efforts to eradicate the bee parasite. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Dr Shane Hetherington says it's a crucial next step. This is truly a transition. We want to get beekeepers and pollination dependent industries to a point where they're able to manage this really serious pest with minimal government inter- intervention, you know, we don't want to be continuing to be in people's hives. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO, Danny Leferve, has welcomed the plan, which will see the shareable costs of the response revised from a limit of $136 million to a limit of $100 million. Yeah, it's been a long time in the making. It's been quite a, a big negotiation. So the response plans are really focused on education and extension, really getting those opportunities out to beekeepers right across the country um, to make sure that they're comfortable with the management of varroa and understand the pest, not only uh, in the areas where the pest is already uh, established through New South Wales, but across every jurisdiction. We want to make sure that the beekeepers are comfortable in being able to do the surveillance to find it, uh, but once found it, comfortable in what management options they need to deploy um, and how can they monitor and keep continual vigil looking out for those pests. And what's the the time frame for this plan? Is it 12 months or 24? Uh, So we we worked really hard at Zarbic to lobby uh, all the affected parties um, to try and get an extension. So uh, for the first time, a transition to management plan is is being granted to go longer than the the, um, stipulated 12 months. 
uh, and we've been able to push it out to 24 months. But the activities themselves will be 12 months activities, but they're not bound by that time frame. So we can make sure that our beekeepers uh, will have access to these resources and training and um, extension officers right through the whole season. And East Coast grain handler Graincorp has forecast a sharp drop in profit and revenue in 2024 after a difficult season in northern New South Wales and Queensland. This sent its share price down 12% to $7.20. At the company's annual general meeting this morning, Graincorp Managing Director Robert Spurway told shareholders the 2023 to 2024 harvest was a tale of two halves with an above-average season in Victoria and southern New South Wales but this was offset by lower production volumes in northern growing regions. The company has forecast its underlying earnings before interest and taxes and immortalisation, or EBITDA, to be $270 to $310 million. That's down from $565 million in 2023. And it's forecasting a net profit after tax will more than halve to $65 to $95 million, down from $250 million last year. And that's Rural News for this Wednesday. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field there with Rural News. Let's find out what's happening weather-wise with Stephanie Miles at the Bureau of Meteorology. Stephanie, has the worst of the weather left us? Do we have you there, Stephanie? You, but you cannot hear me. Uh, There we go. Take it away. You got me. <laughs> I was just saying that across the state it feels a lot more settled today compared to, you know, some really crazy conditions that we had uh, with that line of thunderstorms that crossed yesterday. And I'm sure a lot of the community know of the very vast impacts that we had from those thunderstorms as well, as well as some really strong winds, some really heavy rainfall, and of course those damaging fires out in the western parts of the state. So just wanted to say that I hope everyone's staying safe and, you know, keeping uh, some good spirits today. But in terms of the weather, like we said, very much more settled conditions. We've got a lot of cloud and a couple of showers in the southern parts of the state and a lot of clear skies in the northern parts of the state as well. And it's all because we've got a nice big ridge over us, which is bringing, like we said, those more calm and more uh, settled conditions. And really, uh, we don't really have much changing over the next couple of days, which is, I guess, a relief for those people that are probably in recovery mode. So for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, into the early stages of next week, we've just continuing under that ridge. There's a, perhaps a couple of showers on and south of the ranges, particularly around East Gippsland, uh, maybe on Saturday and Sunday. But other than that, we've just got some really average temperatures across the state, anywhere between the you know low 20s in the south to mid 20s and then up into the high 30s or so in the northern parts of the state, just building across the next four or five days. But other than that, we're not really expecting any significant weather coming work, which is really nice news, I hope, for everyone across the state now. Stephanie, we get a break from the fire weather conditions that we've experienced over the last few days. I think you asked if we are going to get a break, and I think we are definitely uh, with these southerly winds that we've got through. They're a lot less uh, vigorous. We don't have as many gusts or any strong winds coming through, and they're really just sticking around uh, and becoming even more calm on the weekend as well. So the winds are definitely dying off. The temperatures are feeling very much still like summer, so we're still getting some warm days in there in those mid to high 30s. But in terms of our fire weather, the threat is definitely nowhere near as what we had yesterday, Warwick. Brilliant. Stephanie Miles, thank you very much for that. Stephanie Miles, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. Warwick along with you for the Country Hour today.
We're at the Australian Dairy Conference, which is in uh, Crown in the city. Uh, we are also going to cross later on in the program, though, uh, to Gippsland, where those storms have been hitting quite significantly. And as you've heard earlier in the program and in rural news, uh, costing the life of a dairy farmer in those storms. More information on that coming for you as well. But we're about to go overseas again. We've been to Ireland. We've been to the UK. We've been to uh, New Zealand. Let's go to Canada now. Ben Loweth is a, from Summit Station Dairy and Creamery in Canada. Uh, I think he put it best by saying his farm's within half an hour of the birthplace of Drake and Justin Bieber. Is that right, Ben? That's absolutely right. Our claim to fame. <laughs> um, you have an interesting chat, and it follows on really well from our discussion earlier where we've been talking about what farmers are expecting from other countries, what they're dealing with in other countries, and what can we learn about it in Australia you're near a lot of people, probably closer to more people than any individual dairy farmer is in Australia, right? And that's changed how you farm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, the urban community has been uh, encroaching on where our farm is uh, steadily over the last 76 years. But within half an hour drive, there's probably about 700,000 people uh, near our farm. 700,000 people near your farm. How Nosy is a word they should probably find a better word for, but how nosy are the neighbours? How much do they want to know about what you're doing on farm? Well, it's interesting that you phrase it that way because on the, <laughs> on the negative side, uh, we have lots of neighbours who uh, have moved to the countryside expecting uh, an idyllic, uh, calm environment and are not expecting the noises and odours and dust that come along with the dairy farm. Um, so that's one of the negative things, that they have objections to that. But on the positive side of it, um, we conduct tours on our farm every single week. We have about between 25 and 50 people out that are willing to come out because they want to learn where their food comes from. So, so that curiosity uh, from the general public is fantastic. So how did it change you in terms of how you interact with these people around you and how you've invited them into your farm? Where did you start from and how different are you now? Well, I, I think that... Um, if I look back on how we ran our farm, say, uh, 25 or 30 years ago, um, we were doing the field work ourselves. Uh, we would operate from, say, 7 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night, and that's when the wagons and manure spreaders were going up and down the road beside our neighbors' properties. And so they they grew up with around agriculture. They understood what it took to run a farm. They knew what your farm smelt like. Exactly. They knew what you would be doing. That's yeah. right. They yeah. knew what was going on. They knew yeah. when, when it would end. But as our farm grew over the, the, the subsequent decades, now we have custom operators. They will run... 24 hours a day, seven days a week for four, five, six days in a row. So you have empty wagons banging up and down the, the road. And so we have changed how we operate. And also it's a different type of neighbors. These are people that have just moved in the last year or two or three years ago and they, they were expecting something very different from their idyllic country estates. <laughs> and uh, how do you find the happy medium then? So you can keep farming without people always angry about you and an angry Facebook page created to say you're the worst in the world. How do you keep farming and keep them happy? But also, you, you've got to make money, right? You've still got to run a commercial dairy farm. And I, I guess the way you, you try to thread that needle is understanding that we are a business, that we need to, as you said, uh, operate at a profit, and there's certain realities of that, but still being empathetic to their needs, that they move, they have a right to enjoy their property, that they should have be able to have dinner uh, on Friday night and have friends over and sit outside without being chased in by the dust and the odors and the noise. And so there's this empathy and compromise where you reach out and say, here's what we can do to accommodate. If you're going to 
have friends over, if you have a wedding that you're having in your backyard, let us know and we'll accommodate as best we can with our schedules, understanding that there's certain realities of how we have to run our operation as well. And you even changed gravel on your road, didn't yeah, you? To yeah, take the dust down. Exactly. Like one of our neighbours was uh, uh, rightly complaining about just all the amount of dust that was kicking up on the side road as we were going to the fields. And so we paved about uh, maybe 500 feet, 600 feet of the road beside his house to keep uh, to keep the dust down. And working with them, even if it wasn't a perfect solution, they were extremely grateful that we were willing to do something to try to accommodate their, their very legitimate concerns. And has that been a success for you? Do you think it'll keep you at the farm longer? I, I do. And, and I, not only will it keep us on the farm longer, I think um, when we go to do our next building project or expansion, there will be less pushback from the neighbours because they realise that if they have concerns, maybe we can't find a perfect solution. But at the very least, they will. They feel that they will be listened to and that we will do our part to try to find a compromise so that they can enjoy their properties too. It is, fa- And I've been asking this question of the other ones. What Yours is more an individual story than than a nationwide specific. So I won't ask you what Australian farmers can learn from Canada, but what can Australian farmers learn from your experience then in terms of managing neighbours and and inviting more people to take part in your farm and not being threatened by that? And I I think there's two parts. Number one is that... you do have to have a certain level of empathy with what they're going through. That you can't just take the attitude of "I was here first, uh, I have a right, I'm within my rights to do what I'm uh, what I'm doing, and therefore I don't need to listen to to your concerns." In the long run, that's just going to burn you because you're just going to make enemies uh, all over the but place. It's the first thing you want to say most of the time uh, when someone challenges uh, yeah, you. Right? And, and, right, and I, I, I have a personal policy where when someone starts complaining or get angry, I give myself a 24-hour cooling down period <laughs> before I re- respond because usually my response after 24 hours is very different from what my response would have been in the heat of the moment. But the other thing that I would I would uh, put forward is that the encroaching uh, urban population, there's opportunities there as well. There's opportunities to have tours that, that on our farm we charge for those tours. We do need to uh, value our time. But people are, are keen to learn uh, about where their food comes from. And that only helps the reputation of agriculture in general and, and in our uh, case, the dairy industry specifically. That the more they understand of and see how you're caring for the animals and that our values are the same as their values, then all of a sudden they realize that we're not the enemy and that we we can live together. We're not the enemy. That's an interesting place to finish. I like that. Uh, Ben Lower, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you, Warwick. Uh, From Summit Station Dairy and Creamery in Canada, telling you what you can learn from Canada. I'll get you to pass the mic over to our next guest because... Well, awards are really handed out here too. The Young Dairy Scientist Award winner, Laura Jensen, can join you now. PhD student at La Trobe and Agriculture, Victoria. First things first, Laura, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, very exciting. You're doing interesting work that can help farmers on farm here, particularly in some of our hotter areas of Victoria. And given the last 24 hours or so, I'd imagine many people are interested in that. Uh, Tell us about your work. Yeah, so I'm early in my PhD. So right now I'm in the phase of asking farmers to partner with me to conduct this research. So I am focused on heat stress and how we can reduce its impacts on your farm through breeding. And how we do that is there's currently a breeding value for heat tolerance that's focused on milk production and the decline in milk production. And I'm researching if we can use sensor collars. So your collars, ear tags, pedometers that your cows have and use the data that you already have on your farm to improve your return on investment and create new breeding values that are hopefully less correlated with milk yield so that when we're selecting for heat tolerance and milk production, 
your cows that are producing a lot can still stay cool in the summer. So that will amaze many people, even the non-dairy farmers listening to this, is that that is a trait you can select for, how well a cow is going to cope with hot conditions. Yeah, exactly. So the goal is that when it's 35 degrees outside, instead of your cow being like me and wanting to cry and go back to the air conditioning, they can stay out grazing and making you milk. And uh, how much of a gain can the genetics help an individual farmer with their cattle? So I don't have a number for that yet because I'm early in my career and in this research project specifically. But genetics and breeding for things is a really cool area because all of your gains are cumulative. So with management changes, you have to keep doing that to keep the progress that you're making. But every generation and genetics is building on the next. So every time you select for a heat tolerant cow, her calves are going to be more heat tolerant. Their calves are going to be more heat tolerant. So even if you stop someday, all the gains you've already made, you get to keep. Uh, And I suppose just finally then, uh, when it comes to breeding and selecting for traits, do you have to be wary about what you trade off when you breed cattle for being better at heat tolerance? Do you lose something in fertility? Do you lose something in how well they do off their feed? Any other traits? Yeah, so that's kind of the challenge with breeding is it's very complicated. Genes control a lot of different things. All the processes are intermingling in the cow and we can't always predict perfectly what's going to happen. Um, We do know that the things that we're most interested economically, milk production and high components, are generally negatively related to the things that we are also interested in, such as fertility or in my case heat tolerance. And so the trick is trying to tease out how we can do both of them balanced so that we're getting cows that are kind of the best of both worlds. Good luck with it. That is fascinating work, and I'm so glad you could join us and tell us about it. But more importantly, I'm glad you won the award. Laura Jensen, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Laura Jensen there, uh, PhD student at La Trobe and Agriculture Victoria, Young Dairy Scientist Award winner. You're listening to The Country Hour. work along with you. Market's on the way. Before we get there, though, let's quickly try and head to Fiona Broom, who's in Gippsland, has been down near Burboo North, where some of that destruction of storms has been at its worst and where a dairy farmer has unfortunately lost his life. Uh, Fiona Broom, welcome to The Country Hour. What can you tell us? in Murby North as we speak. I'm up on top of a hill where I've been told we can get a little bit of phone reception down in the town. There's just no phone reception at all. Um, Never seen anything like this is what I'm hearing from most people at the moment. The the destruction is pretty extensive. Um, Coming in on the road, there's just trees down absolutely everywhere. The, the, The wires from the power lines are down there across the roads. There's even like sheds that you can see have been blown across the road. Um, massive red gums that are ripped up from their roots, just uprooted trees left, right and centre. So it's making it pretty difficult to get a clear picture at the moment of the extent of the damage because most of the roads are still closed and people don't have um, any access to their phone networks um, at the moment. So we are trying to get a bit of a picture of, of what's happening out on the farms. Um, I did have a quick chat with the CFA, uh, asked if they knew of anybody on farm who'd had uh, a bit of damage and they said all of them um, so yeah looking like quite a lot of damage at the moment but still trying to find out quite how severe that is and, and Fiona it must be devastating in that community today with the with the news that a, a farmer has died how are people going that you've been able to speak to well I don't think that news has actually reached the community yet I think because communication is so poor here at the moment um, the few people I've, I've spoken to haven't actually heard that news yet so I think that that 
um, brief will sort of still be to come over the next few days as people get out and speak to each other and, and, um, and learn about that news. I spoke to a few dairy companies earlier. They don't have a huge amount of um, uh, complaints about how their factories are operating, but I'd imagine a lot of the dairy farms in the area where you're at will find it be very difficult to get their milk out over the, the next day or so. Yeah, they, there were no pickups yesterday afternoon, as far as I know, around the Leangatha and South Gippsland um, areas. And, uh, of course, with phones being down, they haven't been able to get onto their processes to find out if when they're going to get a pickup today. Um, some people I've spoken to say that they've got pretty pretty good capacity with their generators because they have really poor reliability for the power in their areas. So they've still been able to milk, um, but they obviously can only hold on to that milk for um, perhaps only another few hours if they don't get picked up. And the pickups, that there's going to be a question mark over them um, with a lot of the roads in this area still being closed due to just so much debris across the roads. Fiona, thank you so much for your time. Fiona Broom at Merbu North, where some of the damage from the storms is at its worst, uh, with huge amounts of trees down over the roads. Some roads still closed in the area. Destruction, all of them, was uh, Fiona's words there from what she was hearing from authorities, which just sounds horrific. And, of course, uh, a dairy farmer of that area had died yet last night in those storms too. You'll hear more on that, I'd imagine, in the coming days. Right now, though, on the Country Hour, we better find out how markets have gone. Uh, well, let's head there now. And no Lee and Gatha report because of those telecommunication issues in that part of Gippsland due to the storms. Our apologies for that. We will head to Horsham, though, for the Sheep and Lamb Market Report. Take it away, Graham Palmer. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb supply halved, and there was a small increase in sheep numbers with 3,000 lambs drawn. Noting the numbers were affected by yesterday's fire activity, making it difficult to muster stock. The smaller buying group attended operated with less urgency in an easier market, backed by 10 to $20 a head. Medium and heavy trade weight sold from 144 to 155. The heavy export weight lambs made from 170 to 185. Restock was paid from 40 to 76 for light weights, 63 to 144 for better lambs. They paid 104 for merino lambs. Merino hoggets and a big skin sold at $118. Sheep numbers were up at 1400 and quality was mostly good. Sheep sold to an easier trend, to be to $15 head easier, but close to Fort Firm on the heavy crossbreed ewes. Merino ewes sold at $84, crossbreed ewes at $80. Light trade weight lamb sold to $139 every $630. Medium trade weight sold from $144 to $147, they've averaged $605. The export weight lambs from $170 to $185, to average $6.40. Medium weight sheep sold to $58, Merino portion averaging $230. And Graham Pine at Horsham from LA. Thanks very much for that, Graham. Let's go to Hamilton Sheep and Lambs now with Chris Agnew. Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Age and sharded 13,500 lambs at Hamilton this week, a decrease of 1,500. There was a big turnaround in quality this week with very few heavy lambs on offer, the majority being trade weight lambs only up to 26 kilos. However, there was a large tail. About 50% of the yarding of the lambs lacked weight and cover. 
Not all the processors were present and not all were fully active. Restock interest was still keen for lambs back to the paddock to southeast to South Australia and local areas. The market was $20 to $25 per head cheaper over all categories to the trade, with the lambs back to the paddock back by $10 to $15. The best heavy lambs made $168 this week, with most lambs to the trade making between $570 and $640. Light 12 to 16 kg lambs, $55 to $118. Lambs to the trade 18 to 22, 110 to 151, and the 22 to 26s, 132 to 157. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Chris. That's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour today. You can always listen to a podcast of the program. Just search Victorian Country Hour wherever you get your podcast. Uh, that is also it for our time at the Australian Dairy Conference. You will hear, though, from uh, some more stories. I've got interviews with Fonterra and Lactalis coming up this afternoon on major milk companies to bring you over the coming days and weeks as well. I hope you can join us then. We'll join you again from the studio tomorrow.